Well, as you just heard me pray, uh, I have prayed a few times this week, but several days now I've been praying that for many of you, today would mark a significant turning point in your spiritual life. Because uh, we were talking today about an issue that several of us in the church uh, still wrestle with today. Uh, last week, we looked at Joseph's time in Egypt, the time he spent as a slave in Potiphar's house and then in the prison. And we saw great truth about how God is with us at all times. But we skipped over something very remarkable in that story, and we did that so we could come back to it this week and spend more time in it. That thing that sticks out is Joseph's remarkable ability to withstand temptation day after day. We'll read the story in a moment. Several of you are familiar with it from last week or from your past, and uh, you might even know there is a, an illustrious woman in the house, one of the great women in Egypt, presumably very beautiful, at the very least honored and arrayed in splendor. And day after day, she propositions Joseph. She tempts him and entices him to sin with her. And day after day, he's able to tell her no. Uh, just a remarkable thing. And many of us, I know, look at that and we say, I wish I could say no like that, right? I wish I could say no to my fiance like that. Uh, I wish I could say no to porn like that, right? And Joseph's integrity, his purity inspires us. And I hope it doesn't discourage you. I hope it encourages you. And this is one of the incredible ways that he points to Jesus Christ. Uh, we've talked for quite a while about how Joseph is being made like Jesus in ways that you, if you're a believer, are being made like Jesus. And this is one of those ways, his remarkable ability to withstand temptation. Now, Christians who follow Jesus Christ, we look to him as the greatest example, and we think of the time he spent 40 days in the desert, as hungry as a person can be, and then was tempted by even more than Joseph was tempted with, but he withstood that temptation. And the Spirit says to us now through the book of 1 Peter that through our knowledge of that Jesus, we have been given everything we need for a godly life. It says uh, we, we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of this Jesus Christ. If you know him, if you have him, you've been given all you need for a godly and pure life. God is equipping you. It's a matter of if we will take it up and strive to be pure. So we look at Joseph and, and there are a couple of myths we might want to believe. We might want to believe it just feels impossible to withstand, especially to sexual temptation like that. Uh, but then we see First Peter or Second Peter telling us we've been given all things that we need for life and godliness. Or we might be tempted to think that's not a very big deal. It's not important. We don't have to keep striving. But then we see in the New Testament to strive for the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. And so we see not only can we fight this fight, we must fight this fight. So part of the equipping that you are given by the Lord is this example of Joseph. So we're going to dive deep into it today and see how he equips us to live lives of purity as Christians. And then we're going to see how Jesus has accomplished that already for us so that we can walk out of here with confidence in the purity he's given us. So let's look at this part of the story. We'll start at Genesis 39, the second part of verse 6. In most Bibles, there's a new paragraph right there. And we'll read all the way through verse 18. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused 
and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and she said to them, see, he has brought a Hebrew among us to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me. And fled out of the house. Through Joseph's example, right there, the Spirit of God equips Christians to withstand sexual temptation. Again, his remarkable strength points to the strength of Jesus Christ, who, while on earth, withstood fasting for 40 days and then deep and intense temptation from Satan. And if you are a believer in Jesus, the same spirit lives within you, equipping you to walk a life of purity. Part of how he is equipping you is the example of Joseph here. So we're going to walk through this part of the story and take from it five ways that Joseph's example equips us to live lives of purity, to withstand sexual temptation. Let's start again at verse 6. We see there that Joseph is, it says, handsome in both form and appearance. And you know what that means. I don't have to tell you what that means. I may have to tell you, though, or remind you that the same thing was said about his mother, Rachel, when she was introduced, that she was beautiful in form and appearance. And in the original, it's the same word. We just say beautiful and handsome because he's a guy. So evidently, his mother has passed down this attractiveness to him. His master, he's a slave in Egypt, and his master's wife sees this and desires him. She casts her eye on him. So she looks to him and just says in English three words, lie with me. Uh, In Hebrew, just two words, right? So just short, terse, to the point. Uh, Reminds us of Judah in the chapter before who was just walking down the road and saw a woman and did the very same thing, just sprung right on her like that without restraint. But Joseph is very much an opposite. Uh, He is able to withstand this temptation day after day. We see in verse 10, day after day, she would approach him like this. And day after day, he would refuse her. So the narrator here is giving us an intentional opposite of Judah, if you remember what he did a few weeks ago when we studied him. Now we have the positive example. What do you do day after day refusing that temptation? And from there we can draw our first point, which is when you're enticed, refuse every time. Right? Day after day he's enticed, and day after day he refuses. One of the truths in the Bible from beginning to end, really, is that sin is after you. 
Uh, Adam and Eve were there in the garden, and they didn't have to go find the serpent. The serpent slithered in and found them and deceived them into sin. And then in the very next generation, in Genesis 4, uh, Abel has offered a good sacrifice to God, and Cain has not. Cain is angry and wants to kill Abel, and the Lord says to him, sin is at your door. It is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And on and on we go through the story. Later on, Peter will write, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So you don't have to go find wrong things to do. They will find you. And one of the ways that sin is after you is through people who would like to sin with you. And particularly for Joseph, someone who wants to commit immorality, even particularly adultery with him. So sin can come after us in all kinds of ways. Today it might be a a direct message on Instagram or in your phone or on your texts. Uh, Today it might be a a link on a website where you know what's on the other side of that link and you want to see what's on the other side of that link. Uh, It might be a guy at a bar. Uh, It might be your girlfriend or fiance who says, but we love each other. What's the big deal? Right? So through all kinds of people in all kinds of ways sin is after you and every time you've got to refuse it like Joseph did here day after day saying no I refuse now that may sound basic right like uh, Nancy Reagan just say no like you know just a little like, like that's all you got for me just don't do it say no but we have to receive a message like that and treasure it because that's actually the instruction of the Proverbs uh, In the Proverbs, the first two chapters, uh, the book starts with a nine-verse introduction, and then it starts giving practical advice. And the the tenth verse, the first piece of practical advice it gives is, my son, when sinners entice you, do not consent. So that's the first piece of advice this father has for his son. Sinners are going to entice you. Don't, Don't give your consent when it happens. And then he goes on and he gives some more advice, and several verses later in the same section, He says, my son, if you will keep my words, if you will treasure up my words and my teachings, they will keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress and her smooth words. So taking all those nuggets of wisdom that he was dropping and just treasuring them, saying, I will hold them close to me, that strengthens your heart for the day when temptation comes after you. That first bit of advice was, when sinners come after you, don't give your consent. So a message like this, an example like this of Joseph refusing day after day, we strengthen our hearts against temptation when we treasure that up, when we lay that up and say, oh, that is precious. I want that. I want to be like that. Now, on the other hand, naivety would say, well, nobody's going to come after me right? Have you seen me? Or I'm 85. I'm on the shelf now. Nobody's going to pursue me. Wisdom says Satan is still after me. And he has convinced people to do much dumber things than hit on me. And so I'm going to be ready, right? I'm going to be ready to not give my consent when I am enticed. So the first example Joseph gives us is just say no every time you're enticed, to deny them every time you're enticed. Block that message if you have to. 
Tell the person you're going on a date with, no, if you have to, leave the website if you have to, time after time, every time, and then you need an example, you've got Joseph right here. So she says this to him, lie with me, and it's only two words in the Hebrew, and that contrasts his response, which is just full of words, right? He's got plenty of words to say, which shows us how much this has thrown him off. Like he's scandalized by it. You know, you get surprised sometimes and you just start and you can't stop talking. So he is scandalized by the way that he, he has been approached like this. And much of what he says, we see it here, it begins in verse 8 and it goes on. Much of what he says is about what he's been entrusted with. He says, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge, so he stewarded me with his whole house. He's not greater in this house than I am. So Joseph basically rules the place, and he has not kept back from me anything except you. So much of his logic here is, I've been stewarded with this great house, I'm allowed to eat from the pantry. I'm allowed to drink from the water and the wine, all that I want to. Like, I've been given and stewarded so much. And then he ends with, how then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So his logic is, okay, adultery would be awful. I could not do that. But even worse, when I've been given so much and and stewarded with so much. And so we can draw a second help from him there, and that's simply to consider all that has been entrusted to you. This will strengthen you against temptation. Consider all that has been entrusted to you. His logic here is what Adam and Eve should have said. All right? Now, when you've got somebody who's been set over a whole place, and they're allowed to take and eat freely from everything except for one thing, that sounds like Adam and Eve, right, set over this whole garden, given this whole garden, stewarded this whole garden, told by the Lord, you may eat freely from any tree that you want to, just don't eat from this one tree. So that serpent slithers in there. They should have said, look at how much the Lord has given us. We can eat freely from all these trees. We, we are responsible to care for this whole garden. How could we do a great wickedness and eat from the one tree that he tells us not to eat from? Same logic that Joseph is using here. And what can help us here is this biblical principle that he's working from. Very simply, it, from him to whom much has been given, much is expected. Right? If, if the Lord gives you a lot, He expects a lot from you. Those are Jesus' words there. From him to whom much has been given, much is expected. Also, other places in the New Testament say, uh, for instance, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. If you've been stewarded with something, it's required that you be found faithful with that. And servants in houses, household servants, are told, you know, do a good job and don't pilfer the house, right? Don't steal from your master. You've been, he's trusting you with this stuff, so don't steal from him. This is the sort of ethic Joseph is working with here. I can't, I can't pilfer this house and, and try to steal this man's wife from him like this. Oh, what a great sin that would be when he trusts me and leaves me alone in his house when he goes on trips like this. I've been entrusted with so much. So, we can steward, part of stewarding what God has given us is staying pure, especially if you've been entrusted with a lot. Uh, This is why, for instance, uh, when someone like a pastor in a community 
falls into scandal like adultery, it's especially grievous to everybody, right? Because he's been entrusted with so much. And one of the ethical questions people ask today is, okay, if if a pastor were to fall into adultery with one of his church members, is that worse because it's one of his church members? And with Joseph's logic in those verses in the New Testament, we could say, yes, that is worse. Because this is a house that he's been stewarded with and a woman that has been placed in his care. And he's pilfered the house. It's required of servants that they be found faithful, not that they pilfer the house. This same principle is why uh, when we hear stories about, especially men who fall into adultery, we'll often say, oh, and he had, he had a wonderful wife, and he had three great kids and a great job, and oh, he just ran around with this other woman. Why does that impress us so much that he had so much? Because from him to whom much has been given, much is required. So it's a great sin, but it's even greater when we've been entrusted with much. So that means then that one of the ways you can guard yourself against temptation is by tallying up everything that the Lord has given you. Just go through your life and add up what God has entrusted to you. Cars, how many cars do you own? Right. Do you have a house? Do you rent a house? Your job? Uh, are, are, you, are you stewarded with anything at work? Is there expensive machinery that you're, you're part of taking care of and is put in your care? Are there people put in your care at work? Do you have a spouse, children, grandchildren? Some of you great-grandchildren, so blessed by God. You add it all up and you say, look at what the Lord has given to me and is trusting me with. Now you're strengthened against temptation when it comes. You may even need to look at it concretely, right? The Lord has put this laptop or this iPad in my care. How could I then look at illicit pictures on it? Right? The Lord has given me extra money through my job. How could I use that to hire a cam girl or a prostitute when the Lord has given me so much? So we guard ourselves against temptation by adding up and tallying up what the Lord has given us, just like Joseph is ready to do right here. The moment strikes and his heart goes right to, oh, look at how much I've been stewarded with, how much I'm trusted with. How could I commit such a great crime against God? We go on and we find another example in his response. Uh, In verse 9, he says, how then... Can I do this great wickedness, he calls it a great wickedness, and sin against God? So so he doesn't look at it as a small thing. He's not trifling with it. This is great wickedness. And even though he has only talked about his master so far, he doesn't say it's sin against my master, against your husband. He says and sin sin against God. So he is seeing this as, as a big deal and a sin against God. And we can draw from that a third point, third help he gives us, that sexual immorality is a great sin against God. Now, if we get a big view of it, that can help us on one hand heal from our past. If it's in your past, part of healing from your past is acknowledging what a big deal it is and letting the blood of Jesus cover the whole thing. And if we want to look forward to the future and walk in purity, part of walking in purity is saying, okay, this isn't a small deal, this is a big deal, and so I have got to strive for this holiness. We guard ourselves by having a big view of such a great sin before God. Now, 
that pushes back some against one of the myths that circulates around churches and around even our country. And that's the myth that all sins are equal. Uh, I wonder if you've ever heard that before. Sometimes people say, that, oh, sin's a sin. All sins are equal. But Jesus is before, I can't recall right now if it's Herod or Pilate, he's before one of them, and he says, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin, right? So there's sort of bigger and, and, and I don't want to say littler ones, but maybe bigger and even bigger ones. Uh, the one who handed me over you is guilty of a greater sin. He says in another place, uh, he's talking about uh, cities that have seen him perform miracles and heard him call them to repentance, but they rejected him. Uh, and he says, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you, because if they had seen the miracles I've done before you, they would have repented, right? And so we've got a picture of people more and less miserable in the judgment because they have committed greater or not as great sins. So there are, there are bigger sins, there are greater sins, and there are sins. Uh, there are those who are, are judged more severely because of what they have done and less severely because of what they have done. And if we think for a moment, it, it must be this way. It couldn't be that my great-grandfather who never knew the Lord and, and Adolf Hitler would receive the same fate in the judgment. That doesn't feel just, does it? No, there must be more and, and less. And the consistent testimony in the scriptures is that sexual immorality is one of the big ones, right? There are sins and there are great sins. And immorality is one of the big ones. This is because things like manhood and womanhood and the human body and marriage and sexual intimacy are really important to the Lord. When he begins to talk about them in the scriptures, the language gets elevated to, to poetry. Now, when we talk about things like marriage and sex and manhood and womanhood, we've got all sorts of derogatory terms, and we, we, we just want to degrade it with all of our crude jokes and all of our words that we want to use for it. We put it down and cheapen it. When the Lord talks about it, he lifts up the language to poetry. So Adam sees his wife Eve for the first time and he says, ah, oh, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I shall call her woman for she was taken from man. He, he busts out into song like it's Moana or something and, and, and it's poetry. It's lifted up, right? And then there's a whole book in the wisdom literature of Song of Solomon that's about marital love and intimacy. And it's poetic. The images are vivid and you can tell this is a valuable thing in God's eyes, right? This isn't, this isn't a bug in his design. The fact that man and wife can come together like that matters to him. And so when we take something that really matters like that to God and we just break it into pieces with adultery or sex before marriage or, or rape or pornography, that, that's a big deal to him. And so chapters before this, a king named Abimelech is about to commit adultery, and he doesn't realize it. And so the Lord warns him in a dream, and he says, you are a dead man for what you are about to do. Can you imagine the Lord appearing to you in a dream and saying, you are a dead man for what you're about to do? It's a big deal to the Lord. Abimelech turned, he did the right thing, and it didn't happen to him. 
And then on and on in the Old Testament law, the Lord had them write it into their code. It was a capital offense to commit adultery or to come together like that before marriage. And then in the New Testament, uh, there are oftentimes, you know, kind of lists of like, you know, the big ones, the, the, the great sins, the kind of things that mark people as unbelievers if they continue on in this life. And so it says people that do these things regularly, they, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. And in 1 Corinthians, there's one of these lists, and it lists separately uh, adultery, immorality, which is kind of a catch-all for any sexual contact outside of marriage, and, uh, and then homosexuality is, is the third one. Lists all three of those separately. Uh, Galatians, a similar list of when we're just living according to what our bodies want, and it lists sensuality, immorality, and, and orgies, all three separately. And in Revelation, we get that final picture of people still living this lifestyle on the day of judgment are condemned forever. We see it happen. So it puts a terror in us that says, that's a big deal. Now, in one of those passages, uh, he says, after he lists all those off, he says these wonderful words, and such were some of you, right? Like to the holy ones of God, like some of you, that was you, wasn't it? But you were washed, you were made pure, you were cleansed. So there's no sin too great to be washed of, to be purified of, to be cleansed of. And in fact, I could probably say in this room, such were some of you, right? But you were washed and you were cleansed because this is what the Lord does. Part of healing from that past is not disassociating from it, not minimizing it and saying, well, it wasn't a big deal, but seeing it for the big deal that it is and looking to the Lord and say, would you have grace for all of that? then you see how big his mercy is. Then you see how grace-filled he is and how powerful the blood of Jesus is to pay for our sins. So that's you. If you're looking in your past, the hope is to see how big it is and look to Jesus for forgiveness. If you're looking to your future today and saying, how do I walk in purity? Part of strengthening yourself is seeing that it's a big deal. It doesn't work to say we aren't hurting anyone, right? That wouldn't work for Joseph, would it? No, he says, I can't do this sin against God. If you're saying to yourself, we aren't hurting anyone, you're forgetting about somebody. You're not hurting God, but you are offending God with what you're doing. So that's the third help, seeing it as a big deal, as a great sin against God. I know that's heavy, but it can give you freedom and life. As the story goes on, uh, Joseph is doing his work. Uh, verse 11, one day he's in the house. He's doing his work like he always does, right? So he's just minded his own business. He's not seeking anything out or being foolish. And she comes to him again to entice him. But this time she grabs his garment, whatever he's wearing. It's not clear what the garment is. She grabs it and evidently is trying to take it off of him and saying, lie with me. And he just nopes out of there. Right, he's okay. Well, you got my garment in your hand, so that thing's coming off, and he runs half naked out of the house to get out of there. Right, this is instructive. He would rather run half naked out of the house than stay in a tempting situation. Would you rather run half naked down Meadow Lane like a fool? or stay in a tempting situation. Joseph gives 
the answer. Avoiding temptation is that big of a deal that if it comes down to it, we've got the answer there. And so the fourth help we draw from Joseph is just flee immorality. This is different from the first one. The first thing we talked about was when you're enticed, refuse, right? This is kind of leveling that up, okay? So when sin comes after you, refuse. When it levels the game up, you can't just refuse anymore. Now you've got to flee, right? Sometimes the temptation gets so intense that you've got to take a drastic measure just to get yourself out of a tempting situation. The Proverbs say a very similar thing. They talk about a a woman who's just called the adulteress, and she's going around town, and she finds an unsuspecting young man, and it says she seizes him, and she kisses him, and she flatters him with her words and her eyes and says, my husband is gone. Let's go drink of love till morning. And he says of this woman, who's very intensely tempting this man, don't go near the door of her house like Just stay as far away as you can. Better to take the long way home than to put yourself in a tempting situation and risk sinning against God. That means then, if it's especially tempting to you, better to not have a phone than to put yourself in a tempting situation and sin against God. Or for some of you, if you're dating or in a relationship and you're not married yet and the temptation is just getting intense, better to just not be alone in a room together until you get married than to put yourself in a tempting situation and sin against God. Better to just not have the device, better to just not have the relationship than to put yourself in a tempting situation and sin against God. Some of you are probably under intense temptation today, and you need to do the proverbial equivalent of running half-naked out of the house just to get out of it. Better to lose a promising relationship if that person is tempting you. Better to lose the technology if it's too tempting to you. Not everybody needs to do that, but some of us are on intense enough temptation like Joseph was that we just need to flee from it. So that's the fourth principle there we pull from him, flee immorality. As the story goes on, we learn that she is not just a woman who wants to commit immorality with him, but she is actually a very vindictive and manipulative person. Uh, He's gone, He's fleed temptation, but she's got his garment, right? And so she gathers all the men of the house together, and she shows them the garment, all the servants, right? And these servants naturally don't like their master who is above them because, you know, the class tension there. And they naturally don't like foreigners, and so she just plays right to that. She doesn't say, there is a man among us who tried to rape me. She says, he has brought a Hebrew among us to come in and laugh at us. So the he is her husband, referring to him kind of with a tense, derogatory nature. So they kind of turn on him and, oh, look what our master did. He brought this guy in here. What a bad master we have. And then she calls him a Hebrew, playing on their ethnic hatred, right? So now they turn on him and they'll hate him. She's turned everybody against her husband and against him. Then her husband comes home, she puts the garment next to her, and she doesn't weep and say, you won't believe what happened to me today. She says, the Hebrew servant that you brought in here did this. And now the, now the pressure's on him, right? The, the men of the house have all turned on him. She's put the pressure on him. 
And there's nothing he can do but react swiftly, even if he doesn't believe her, right? Even if he knows she's not telling the truth. So this isn't somebody who just wants to sin. This is a very manipulative and vindictive person. And she has turned her wrath on Joseph. He's done the right thing, but he's lied about and he's persecuted for it. And so the last truth we have to draw is perhaps the hardest to hear. It's expect to be persecuted for your righteousness. You may walk in purity and suffer more for it. This was true of the first brothers, Cain and Abel. Abel offered a right sacrifice that was acceptable to God, and that's why his brother killed him. It's true of the prophets who stand up boldly and proclaim the truth, and God's kings in Jerusalem kill them for it. And in the midst of all that, Isaiah stands up and says, Hear this, you who know righteousness, do not fear the reproach of man. He knows the words he is saying because he is being reproached by men and kings and all kinds of important figures. He says, don't fear the reproach of man. And Jesus later will say, blessed are you when you are persecuted for your righteousness. Blessed are you when people say all kinds of false things about you and mock you and degrade you on my account. Great is your reward in heaven, he says. So we see just through and through Oftentimes, God's people do the right thing, and they were persecuted for doing the right thing. But don't miss Jesus' words. Blessed are you. If you're a single and you choose to walk in purity, you might go on a lot of first dates and not very many second dates. Blessed are you. If if you are willing to walk in holiness in a workplace that is not, you might be the weirdo in the office. And, and blessed are you if you are. Expect to be persecuted for your righteousness, for your purity. And when it happens, remember Jesus' words, blessed are you. So there's five helps that Joseph gives to us. But the greater help comes from the one who follows after Joseph, the one that Joseph is pointing us to. And this takes us back to Jesus himself. Joseph has showed us so many ways that he is like Jesus. And now we remember that once again, that Jesus went 40 days in a desert, hungry. And he's able to withstand temptation from Satan himself, not from Potiphar's wife, from Satan himself after that. And he withstands it. Now, as God, he's able to do that because he's God. But as man, he's strengthened because God is with him there to strengthen him and because the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. That matters because if you are a Christian, that same Spirit rests upon you as well, strengthening you for that fight against temptation. So there's the greatest help you have to walk in purity. And part of the reason that you can, part of why you can walk out of here with hope this morning, is that for all of us who trust in Jesus, that remarkable level of righteousness that we feel like we can never attain, like that righteousness that fasts for 40 days and then resists Satan, righteousness that can say no to Potiphar's wife day after day, that kind of purity is credited to 
any of us who would trust Jesus Christ. So it's a two-way switch that happens when we trust him. Your sin is taken from you and put upon him, and he pays for it with his death. But not only that, his righteousness is put upon you. And so when God looks down from heaven at you to see how righteous you are, he sees perfection. He sees purity. He sees his son. Maybe the best way I could explain this is that if you were to try to grade yourself on purity from zero to 100, maybe you pretend God is in heaven looking down upon you, writing your score. What's your purity score from zero to 100? If your faith is in Christ Jesus, your score is 100 because his perfect righteousness is credited to you. So I can say, in Christ Jesus, my score is 100. And you can say, by what Jesus has done for me, my score is 100. You can walk out of this room saying, I am more pure than Joseph because of what Jesus has done for me. Now, if that's not yours yet, I hope you want that, and I hope you will run to Jesus Christ. All of your sins paid for, past, present, future, perfect righteousness credited to you. This is what he gives to his people who trust in him. And so I call everyone in this room, if you do not trust him now, trust him today. And be able to say with me and with the rest of us, I am more pure even than Joseph. Let's pray together.